Hey folks, Micah here. We're about to get started, but before we do, I just want to remind you that you can always get show notes for this and every other episode at christiantranshumanistpodcast.com. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for email updates so we can let you know when new shows are released, when new things happen in the Christian transhumanist community, and most importantly, so that we can connect you with other people just like you, exploring questions just like this. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the show. Well, I'm Micah Redding, and I'm here with Philip Clayton, who's a philosopher and theologian, the Ingram Professor at Claremont School of Theology, and the author of numerous books, including The Predicament of Belief, Science, Philosophy, Faith, Religion and Science, The Basics, Transforming Christian Theology for Church and Society, and In Quest of Freedom, The Emergence of Spirit in the Natural World. He has also edited the Oxford Handbook of Religion and Science. So thank you, uh, Dr. Clayton, for joining me today. Hey, it's great to be on the podcast, Micah. Yeah, so maybe let's start by talking about um, your personal story, because I, I think, um, from what I understand, you were raised by atheists. Is that correct? Yeah, my father was not only an atheist, he was uh, an evangelical atheist. <laughs> okay. He, he proselytized for atheism. Uh, as, as strongly as you can get. Uh, my mother had been raised Christian science, so she was very much opposed to religion, though she was a deeply spiritual person and became a Quaker late in her life. Hmm. Uh, and when I had my conversion at 14 to Christianity, uh, it had to be dramatic. Uh, it was my 14-year-old rebellion, and I remember coming back one day uh, at the breakfast table and telling my literature professor father, who believed that every book contains its own truth, that all truth was contained in just one book, <laughs> and there was just one story, and that started out with a man and a woman in the garden, and then they got in trouble, and then God came and fixed it through dying, and someday God was gonna, he was going to come back and he was going to be mad, <laughs> and that they were sinners. So it didn't go over very well. Wow, yeah, I can imagine. So what what provoked your conversion experience, actually? Uh, the truth is, it's a personal question, but the truth is that when I was young, I had um, a sense of connectedness with the world, a deeply spiritual sense. I remember a childhood friend telling me later that I used to say that the flowers and the trees and the sun were God. Hmm. I didn't remember saying that, but I have. she gave me good testimony on that. <laughs> Uh, we went to Europe for a year, traveled with my family, camping, and um, I just I had a growing desire to be linked with a, a spiritual community. And in my small town, the only one that I knew of was Christian Christianity. Hmm. Yeah. So I came back and uh, went to an evangelical camp over Christmas, sophomore year, called Mount Hermon. Hmm. I had my dramatic conversion there, and uh, came home to tell my folks about wow. it. <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, incredible. So, what um, what led you from from that into kind of pursuing the the study in a really deep and formal way of of these questions about theology and religion and philosophy and science and so forth? Great question. So, my mentor in high school was a math prof and Christian guy, super conservative, and he said you should major in philosophy at a Christian college hmm. because it will help you preach in a more organized okay. way. Huh. That was a mistake <laughs> uh, from his perspective. Uh, and it really had just two stages. In my uh, junior year as a philosophy major, we were gathered around Professor Obitz. He was our god, and he, uh, he had 23 probably white males uh, in the classroom teaching the history of philosophy, Leibniz. And we were in some deep question, and all of a sudden he stopped us with his hands. He used to do like this. And he said four words that changed my life. He said, these are the questions. Hmm. And I got it. It was really more about the questions than the answers. Hmm. And that never went away. Hmm. So I am a devotee of the hardest questions that can be asked. Wow. So then in my senior year, uh, two other guys and me wrote a, um, two other guys and I wrote a, wrote master's, no, not master's, uh, honors thesis on faith and reason. Hmm. And when I thought about reason, started reading, it was science. So I started doing science and theology as a senior at Westmont College, and I've never stopped. Wow. 
So a, a lot of people, and and we, we end up talking about this a lot, a lot of people who begin um, a study of, of religion or theology, um, that leads them through a, a crisis of faith, right? They get into it because they're interested in, in their faith. Um, but actually, uh, as, as I like to think of it, you know, like anytime you investigate the pillars of your, your worldview, things start getting shaky, right? Like you start yeah. moving those around. So was that, um, was that like that for you? Did you, was it a kind of traumatic experience to it start going in that direction? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, now, clearly there was. And by the way, I see that in dozens and dozens of my seminary students over the years. Uh, conservative, uh, liberal, no religious background. It seems to happen just like you described it. In my case, I was at Fuller Seminary, Evangelical Seminary in Pasadena, California. I was reading the critical arguments. Um, I decided that maybe there wasn't a God. I dropped out, took a $199 trip one way to Europe. Hmm. I traveled for six months hitchhiking. I mean, it's so typical, but <laughs> there you have it. Uh, I had Hermann Hesse, Narcissus and Goldman in my backpack and other such works. I started reading Indian religion, hmm. came back to Fuller Seminary, and uh, and it really was a crisis of faith. I didn't know if I believed. Uh, and I, I had been a youth pastor, and one day a, uh, a former youth person said, I'm on the top of Mount Wilson, and I've got my daughter in the car, and I'm going to drive over the edge. Hmm. And I said, don't, I'll come up there. And uh, she, I said, promise you, wait. She said, okay, I will. I got on my little motorcycle uh, as a poor student that I had, and I was driving, you know, 6,000 feet up wow. on the Highway 2, uh, <laughs> you know, with the little motorcycle. <laughs> uh, it was finals week, like crazy. And I, I thought to myself, why the hell are you doing this? You're an atheist. You don't believe in God. And this is not convenient for you. And if you don't believe in God, as uh, Ivan says in Dostoevsky, all things are possible mm. in Brothers Karamazov. All things are possible. You can do what you want. You're a, you're a hedonist, right? Uh, could I not drive up the mountain? No, I know I have to. Why, if everything is just matter in motion, as Hobbes said, um, well, I guess I believe in God. Hmm. And I found that this belief in God was inescapable to me, and that sense has never gone away, even though the intellectual doubts uh, have continued. I worked for 25 years with my co-author on the predicament of belief, and our goal was to find the hardest arguments for Christians to address. Every argument against God we could look at we wrote 4,000 pages of correspondence before the little book came out. So for me, the doubt can continue for a whole life, even if you have a, your own personal location. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, so that that's, that's interesting. Um, and it seems like we encounter a lot of people who are having these, um, these kind of up and down uh, spiritual journeys, you know, where, where it's not just static where you make one change or or something like that but where you have this kind of moving um in particularly in your case you know from a, a background of being raised in an atheist environment um converting f falling out of that and then and then coming back into it in a different angle but but as you come back into it it's changed right there's a difference yeah. in how you approach it so what does that say about the life of faith if it's if it's this how do you just describe it the sort of moving yeah, it's a vacillation yeah what, what does that mean that faith is hmm. or religion is if it well it's actually it's just some of us isn't it because mm -hmm. aren't the people born evangelical married evangelical live and die what hatched matched and dispatched <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. For some people, it, it does stay constant, right? There's never, there's never a need to question it or, you know, it's just, it's just always there. Um, but for a lot of, a lot of us, it, it doesn't, it's not that simple. Right. Um, and it, and it, it is interesting to see the people like for me, I didn't, um, have that kind of a dramatic move in and out. Um, I never became an atheist, but I was raised as a preacher's kid, and then at the age of 12, 
started to wonder if I was going to become an atheist because of the stuff I was reading. And I was like, well, I don't know if I am, but everybody else who's reading this stuff became atheists. So um, am I, you know, am I headed that direction? Um, So I never went, you know, I never, um, you know, completed that cycle, but it it got uh, very much more complicated, right? Like it, it became complex. And, um, and that's what it seems like for a lot of people, you know, at some point it's going to become com- complex. Maybe, maybe we don't have a choice in the matter. Uh, some people believe that uh, you're born gay or lesbian and it's not a choice. It's sort of genetic or something. And I wonder if we're born unable to stay neatly in a category. Mm. Um there actually there's a, some recent research that shows that there are six cognitive types uh, of people and that those have a neurological foundation. It's um is his first name Roger Haight H A I G T I think okay. he had a, a book in 2008 called Happiness. Uh, listeners can can Google it and easily find yeah. uh, the exact spelling. Um, and he's the one that takes these six types and then he shows pictures to people, for example, of disgusting things. Mm. And people in a certain category, which is more boxed, if I may, uh, more of their brain lights up. Hmm. And people who uh, who have this more open-ended brain, like us and people like us, hmm. uh, the, 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 they don't have a disgust response. Hmm. Uh, we don't need to have things sharp and clear. Our, maybe our brains aren't even able to do that. People who stay hatched, matched, and dispatched in a single religious orientation, they yeah. seem to have brains that need that kind of order. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I think of that as um, that kind of open-endedness, I guess, as both kind of a blessing and a curse, mm-hmm. right? It Because it brings so much struggle into your your world. Things are not simple. Things are complicated. But there is something um, really wonderful on the other side of it, right? There's a lot of beauty in that um, in that process of ups and downs and discovery. Would you change it if you could? If I had a magic wand, I said I can let you be hatched, match, and dispatched in a single location. Would you accept? Would you have me wave it? I don't think so. I don't think so. I I think it's a lot of, like I said, a lot of struggle, but I don't think I would give it up. No. Yeah. And I think a lot of us are in that position. I certainly am. To be on this podcast, to think about Christian transhumanism, which is a concept that should blow your mind if you're you're paying attention. Uh, I want to be able to go there, to enter into a conversation with you where I don't know what the outcome is going to be and explore it. And see what I learn, and see where there are inconsistencies in my own beliefs and unanswered questions. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating to me. And to say, look, I could give you a. If you said to me, Phil, I can give you a frontal lobotomy, <laughs> and take out your doubt center, right. and um, then you'll just say, oh, Christian transhumanism? No, God created us in a certain way. You can't mess with that. That's the answer. Finished. I would decline. Yeah. 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 I think there's, there's a lot of us there, but it's, um, there's not a lot of, of resources for that, right? There's not a lot of people who are saying, yes, this is the, the way you should approach the world is like with this kind of open-ended and dangerous sort of, uh, sort of approach. And so it becomes a very lonely, uh, process. Less and less so. Mm-hmm. The Pew data shows that the number of um, nuns, the non-affiliated, is increase, increasing dramatically. Uh, last time I saw it, I think it was almost a third of the American public mm-hmm. and significantly higher among millennials. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be a millennial is to be, in well, for many, statistically, is to be um, doubting, mm-hmm. not a joiner, uh, phobic of institutions, Mm -hmm. a little bit snarky, enjoying a kind of sarcasm and non-belief and yeah. So that means if that's true, if the data is true, then there are a whole bunch of people, a growing community. Yeah. So that speaks to some of your interests. Um, You know, one thing that you kind of explore is um, 
is the future of faith. So what is the future of faith? Are we headed for a totally secular world, or, or what does that look like? Yeah, so uh, there's a famous sociologist of religion, Peter Berger, uh, who wrote some brilliant books. Um, Sacred Canopy from early 60s is still an amazing book to read, even just the first 25, 28 pages. Uh, Peter Berger wrote a book in 1993 or so. Um, I think the title was A Far Glory, something like that. And he said that the United States is going to develop in the following direction. The conservatives are going to get more conservative and break out of the sort of standard uh, cultural center. Hmm. And the liberals are going to get more and more liberal and liberal Christians or yeah, and Jews more and more liberal until they get to a point where um, they are identical to the surrounding secular culture. Hmm. And in 1993, that was a radical claim. People disbelieved it. Uh, and I would say that the teaching of a far glory has gotten more and more true in the two decades that followed. Hmm. So the future of faith involves those two sides, wherever you fall on the, on the religious and therefore the political spectrum mm -hmm. about the two. Um, but what Peter Berger didn't see is that there's a growing group of us who live in the liminal space between the two, hmm. uh, where we are both people of faith and people of doubt, both believers and non-believers at the same time. Uh, many of us, in, of my friends, can't use the word Christian anymore, can't attend a traditional church. Um, I was a part of the emergent movement with Tony Jones and others yeah. when it was flourishing, and there used to be things called emergent villages. Mm -hmm. And we would show up at a pub. I did one with uh, with Tony outside of Atlanta, and there are 25 people, and some would be sitting in close and arguing, and then sort of in the back would be a few people in the pub who just kind of wandered up. I remember a <laughs> Buddhist sort of saying, this is all really interesting. Uh, so that's a kind of position in the middle. Yeah. Uh, Peter Rollins is a good example of that. Uh, somebody who preaches atheism but hangs around with Christians. Yeah. <laughs> and we could go on. So that's what I think the future of faith is. Uh, the two sides, and then for me, the fascinating, unpredictable, um, developing, cool, unlabelable spaces in the middle. Mm. So what is that... Um how do we navigate that? And I, I was just listening to an interview or not. A, actually, it was it was the uh, great debacle on the uh, homebrewed uh, Christianity podcast, I think. Um, and um, you and Leron Schultz were were on there. And uh, and we're going to have him on the program in, in uh, soon. So you'll have to give me some pointers to uh, <laughs> uh, to take him on. But um, but you talked about the almost like the spectrum of belief. Mm -hmm. And you said mm -hmm. it's not sufficient for it to be a spectrum anymore for us to just think of it as like a one dimensional thing. We need to think of a grid. Mm -hmm. So like what, what, how do we, how do we kind of locate ourselves in belief and disbelief and so forth when we're kind of in that weird liminal space? Yeah. Uh, so there is a space that's so liminal that, um, you can't do definitions. You can't do grids. Uh, a grid is, a, an, uh, is an item of Newtonian space mm -hmm. where you had the three axes and, and they were fixed and eternal and everything's fit. Um, but the liminal space is flowing. It is like Derrida. It's self-deconstructing. Um, well, I could go on with post-structuralist thought, but it, <laughs> it has that, um, that structure or non-structure, deconstructing, self-deconstructing structure. And that's cool. I'd love to talk more about mm -hmm. that. But um, just to talk for a moment about faith and the argument that I made against Laurent, who's a good friend, mm -hmm. um, is that uh, we used to think of orthodoxy, um, which is, you know, exactly what you believe. And then we had believing it, which is good, and doubting it, which is bad. And so it's basically just what do you assert and is it orthodox? Mm -hmm. And that has become less sharp. And now I want to say there are two two axes, if you will. Um, and one is a spectrum of belief. Actually, let's make it the x-axis. So it's a spectrum of belief, make zero orthodox, 
And then you get way, way further out into what the Orthodox would call la la land <laughs> with uh, really strange and heretical beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, okay? So that's the x axis you can move. Okay? The y axis is how you believe. Hmm. And that goes so Stephen Knapp and I in the Predicum of Belief have these five levels. So we're going to put the Orthodox down here at uh, zero, zero, or if you will, one, one which means I believe totally orthodox beliefs about of Christianity and I believe them with certainty. Mm-hmm. Okay? And then you can have that orthodox, um, the person whose beliefs stay orthodox, but the degree of certainty drops, drops, drops. Mm. Uh, and so we discover, describe these six stages. The certainty, the knowing that people disagree, but I think they're wrong and I can say why they're wrong. That's number two. Three, that I... I can't show the people who disagree with me that they're wrong, uh, but I believe that I can. they can realize that if they had my experiences, they would believe as I do. Hmm. So that's a little bit less certain. Then number four, I don't even know if there are reasons for what I believe. I find myself believing it, but it's so unclear and the matters are so complex that I can't even quite tell you why. So now we're at maybe orthodox beliefs, but way up to that level of uncertainty. And then the last two aren't even belief anymore, but they're they're part of the same spectrum. Number five is that uh, we call it hope plus faith. Hmm. So I have a kind of hope that these things would be true, and I have a kind of faith based on that hope, but not knowledge. Hmm. Our example is, you're in prison, a guy says, tonight there's a helicopter landing on the roof, and it will help us escape. And you don't know if the guy's right or wrong. You have no evidence. But you're willing to, you know, if he can break the door open, you're willing to go up the stairs and take the chance. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Hopeless. Yeah. And then number six is not believing at all. That's um, Christian beliefs are metaphors. They are uh, um, ideals that we wish would be true. Whatever you want to say, but they aren't true hmm. at all. Okay, that's sort of a John Bishop John Shelby Spong. Yeah. Uh, now, so there's that scale, and then you can go more and more out toward heterodox and, and um, heretical beliefs, and they also can fall along the same s- scale. So you see, for any given belief or person, we can locate ourselves how far up that one, how far out that one. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, it makes uh, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and that's so. I guess the the obvious question would be is there one of those places we should find ourselves <laughs> is is there one of those points we can say that's where we should all be mm-hmm. no that wouldn't be yeah we just you and i were just talking about uh things not being so sharp and clear right. and the liminal spaces so i just think we have to say that people with brains like ours minds like ours experience like ours whatever causes it which i presume is a lot of your listeners yeah uh we find ourselves where we find ourselves yeah um, I, I have friends who say I vacillate. Mm-hmm. I have friends who say I'll never believe that Christianity is more than a metaphor, but I'm going to go to a church and find a community because, you know, it's a it's a good place for me to be. Yeah. The whole spectrum. And now, as you said, it's not one spectrum, but two spectra yeah. <laughs> with this kind of interlocking spaces in between. Why would you want to say there's a normative point? If you're orthodox, conservative evangelical you'll say it's zero zero mm-hmm. orthodox beliefs held with complete certainty but i don't think we would want to go there anymore yeah uh, certainly i think people just um and, and this is part of like where we are in in history and so forth but we don't have access to the same amount of certainty to the same degree that we used to have or that society yeah. used to have totally totally and, and, you know, we see this, there's a lot of factors, um, but yeah, exposure to, to more information, to other viewpoints, which themselves kind of throw our perspective into question just by there being more viewpoints. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a lot of things. And um, in, increasingly, it seems to me that people are either somewhere on that, that uncertainty spectrum or they're... Um, really, really working hard to kind of cut themselves off from from a lot of stuff, right? Right. So you might say, oh, that's interesting. Let's just go where you're going. Uh, I go further and further out the Mm x-axis. So Christianity recedes behind me like, you know, a mountain in the Appalachians as you head out uh, toward the flat lands, right? Mm -hmm. 
or leaving the Sierras behind or whatever it is. So it's so distant. It's kind of a distant memory for me mm-hmm. uh, until at some point I'm not oriented by that mountain at all anymore. Mm. That's what I was describing as the liminal space. Yeah. That, you know, we, it's hard to define. Pete Rollins plays really complexly with that one. Yeah. And then I go from a certainty so far out to metaphor that it's not even a matter of belief for me anymore. It's a matter maybe of a community, of honesty, of integrity, of stories that I find compelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah, a lot of people will find themselves at all, all kinds of places in that in that space. So let, let's jump to, um, like, how do you talk about um, the, the relationship of science and religion? Um, given these sorts of questions, right? Like what is, how do we approach that or how can we unpack that or break that uh, <laughs> a, a, open or, or what do we need to do in trying to have a better understanding of those two things? Yeah. Uh, so there are so many typologies of science and religion that um, it was, a, it's a cottage industry. Yeah. It's a growth in, uh, industry. Uh, and I recommend, um, Primary is even Bar- Ian Barber, B-A-R-B-O-U-R. He's the most famous. Uh, Ted Peters uh, has a nice um, series of four approaches. I think they all start with C. So preachers like uh, Ted Peters. If there were three, uh, preachers like him even more. Um, <laughs> That's so true, yes. <laughs> uh, John Hott, H-E-U-G-H-T, has a nice spectrum, and there are others. Okay. Um, let me just present mine in a way that fits together with this conversation on your podcast. And that would be to say that there are those, uh, I'm going to just talk about the religious people for a moment, okay? There are those who use science as a bulwark for their faith. Mm -hmm. I call it the sermon illustrations model. Mm. So I'm preaching the word, I'm in the congregation of faith, I'm talking to Christians, and I cite something from astronomy or biology or neuroscience to make the case for my exegesis of this particular scripture. Yeah. Okay. Then on the other end are those who say science and religion are just utterly opposed. Uh, they can never be reconciled. So like Kierkegaard, you have to take the leap of faith into religion or stick with the science and religion's absurd. Mm-hmm. We could spell that out, but you see where I'm going. Yeah. Okay. And then... <laughs> As the poem says, on the misty flats in between, <laughs> uh, there are those who find the dialogue itself continually rich, open-ended, uh, helpful in understanding the science, helpful in rethinking the religion or constructing it or deconstructing it, whatever. Your title, Christian transhumanism, already directs me to that space. Yeah. Transhumanism primarily comes out of the science. You know, we'll talk about later the various parts. Christian obviously comes out, and it already puts us in that place in the middle, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Don't yeah. you intend that even? Yeah. By your- <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and that that's part of the reason it's so challenging for so many people on both sides of that, right? Coming from a Christian uh, perspective and coming from a transhumanist perspective, there is, in so many cases. Um, such a sense that these are non-overlapping magisteria, right? Um, yeah, to quote Stephen Gould. Yeah, exactly. And um, and the book Rocks of Ages is his yeah, title. Yeah, yeah. So and and he applied that to this question of science and and faith, right? And and to say that that faith or religion is about values, and that science, I guess, is about facts. Um, and so these are two two different things, right? Well, as we know, it's not that simple uh, for most. As simple people. as Galileo said, uh, science tells us how the heavens go, religion tells us how to go to heaven. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. So yeah, so when we yeah when we have this conversation of of Christianity and transhumanism, we get you know a lot of people who um, see no room for serious engagement with technology as occurring within a religious context and people who see no room for a serious engagement with religion as occurring in a technical or scientific context. 
So you, you seem pretty familiar with some of the aspects of, of these kind of worlds. So what, what is your take on, on transhumanism and, and how, it, um, how it might connect or clash with, with Christian thought and Christian belief? Mm-hmm. Um, let me move to, a, uh, to three fundamental assumptions of transhumanism before we talk about particular thinkers. Um, I'm teaching Kurzweil in a, cl- a class this semester yeah. on science and technology and religion. So it's, uh, it's sort of on the tip of my tongue. But let's just think of it. What makes transhumanism a live option? What makes it something we have to wrestle with? Mm-hmm. And I would say three things. It's the growth of science. Mm-hmm. We know a lot more about each part of science. This is physics is, and chemistry, obviously, the background. But we understand the evolution of biology, the uncertainty and um, unpredictability of it. Gould says if you rewound the tape of, uh, of evolution, you wouldn't, and then replayed it, you wouldn't get the same thing. Right, yeah. So there's a contingency there. And then especially neuroscience, uh, development of neural nets and artificial intelligence, and now we, we have a different understanding of the brain So uh, and thought, cognition. So just take that as the first, growth of science. Number two, the growth of technology. Um, the, the technophobes in the scientific community, like Bill Joy, yeah. in his famous uh, 2000, uh, April 2000 essay in Wired magazine, it's on the internet and I really recommend yeah, it. Yeah. He's one of the, the real technophobes um, there's also an author, I'm forgetting his name right now, but he wrote a book a couple decades ago called Future Shock. Mm. And he said, life's out of control and science is responsible. Yeah. Uh, really popular. And you can get it for one penny on Amazon, which yeah, means yeah. <laughs> uh, So that's the, that's the, tech, um, the technology side is the, the explosion of what we can do and make. Yeah. And uh, the technophiles, like Ray Kurzweil, say that that is our salvation, yeah. what we can build. And transhumanism is in that space of what we can build and just saying, hey, this is a descriptive question. Mm -hmm. What can we do and how might it alter humans? Mm -hmm. And we can begin going to the examples, which I'm sure you talk about on the podcast all the time. And then the third reason why transhumanism has to be taken seriously is the loss of the belief that there is essential human nature. Mm -hmm. If there were an essence of what humans are, a particular understanding of imago Dei, of the image of God, or a philosophy that proved what we are, rational animal with Aristotle or something, then you couldn't have transhumanism. All you could do is take the human essence and warp it, break it, just destroy it with some kind of other technology or cloning or whatever, yeah. And then we know that that's sinful, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. But if there's no essence, there's no standard, then you are on an endless plane, and whatever happens to the human as we evolve biologically or through technology, it's it's just a fact. Humans can do this now. You know, we've got this the unit, which is the math, and I click it into the USB port, and now <laughs> I can do incredible math calculations in my head. Right. Right? It's just a little computing unit. Uh, so there's nothing inherently wrong about that. It's just a development. I can describe it without judging it. Yeah. So those are, for me, the three s- developments that make the transhumanism discussion unavoidable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's um, – and that that last one is is kind of part of just postmodernism in general, right? The yeah. move away from – located certainties or you know located categories grand Um, narratives right so do you think um do you think that there is a uh, essential human nature that we need to rediscover or or cling to or do you think that it is this open-ended thing or like what's your perspective on that Mm mm-hmm Asking the hard questions. <laughs> no, it's, that's a great question. One doesn't want to rush into it. Um, we are the being that makes itself. Uh, that first goes back to the 1400s and this amazing Italian humanist named Pico della Mirandola, 
I just like to cite him because I love to say the name. <laughs> That's a great name. And uh, he he puts his philosophy in the form of a prayer to to God, um, but it's actually uh, it's a challenge to the biblical understanding. He says, uh, when you created the world, uh, you created the animals, each with its own form, like St. Thomas Aquinas, its particular essential nature. But when you created humankind, he said, man, you created us without a form. Hmm. Uh, that is, sine forma, without some given essence. And you said that freedom is your fundamental feature. Hmm. So we have no choice but to make ourselves. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre said that we, I won't say enjoy, we are cursed with radical freedom. Hmm. And what if, what if that's not just some philosopher? What if it's human nature to be so radically free that we can make ourselves over time into virtually anything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I am drawn to that, um, both because, um, I, I sense that's, that's how it really is. Like that's what we find, you know, and when we find these kinds of, um, the, you know, the, the, uh, the struggle or, uh, with that, it's the struggle is is in a lot of ways because we know ourselves to be so free, and that mm. that leaves us with this heavy weight of responsibility. Um, and so, you know, this is kind of at least for me seems very similar to the this the our struggle with faith and and with doubt and so forth. When the when the boundaries aren't fixed and we know they're not fixed then we have to take on that responsibility and we have to be conscious of it. And it's a big job, you know, and I think, I think there's, um, you know, the, the biblical sense that, you know, so my reading of the, of the Genesis fall account is that God puts two things that he wants humanity to have knowledge and life. And he puts them there and he says, but you're not ready for the knowledge yet. You're not yet grown up. And um, and humans take it anyway, right? Too like too early, and they become traumatized. And you know, knowledge of all the possibilities is traumatic. Like it does have this sort of effect on us. Um, and so I think this is this is what I see in the scripture is like this struggle to say, well, how do we deal with the the fact that we are uh, a species in trauma, a species that grew up too soon, how do we come to terms with that so that we can be ready for the life? Nice, nice. I like that a lot. One word stuck out to me in what you said, which is we have the task of becoming conscious of it. Hmm. It's interesting how uh, our not having a form, or as you said, thrown into this sort of tragic situation, uh, we were orphaned before our time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that then gives us the task you describe. At the same time, that's a first order task. And then at the same time, we have this other task as to understand what the hell is happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, not only are we inventing ourselves as we go, it's like we find ourselves in the water. Some explosion has happened. Our ship has gone down. We become conscious. We're floating in the water. All right. If I don't do something, I'm going to drown, says every 14-year-old, yeah. right? You grab a, a, a log, some what they're called flotsam and jetsam that's floating around, mm-hmm. and we just hold on to this plank for a little bit, let's say. And then we realize it's pretty wet and we need more, so we grab a couple. And then we see some rope and we lash together some of these planks and, and we sit on it barely or lie on it. That's our first childhood or young adult worldview. And then we bring more together and we just build something right there on the water. Yeah. You know, where's the foundation? What were you supposed to build? Uh, so that's the building, the making of ourselves, right? Yeah. And then there's the the thoughts you have about the process. So what I like about your conception is coming to understand it, which is maybe what this podcast is about, is equally a part of the task. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> I, I like the that illustration of the, you know, the raft we find ourselves on, right? Like the the... Um, having to construct this raft and and to try to assure ourselves that it's seaworthy, right? That this is that this is going to work. Um, and and Except the only way you know, Micah, is whether you sink or, sink or not. Right. The waves come, 
I don't know if my worldview is going to, you know, going to get me through this. You know, my my parent dies or my close friend dies, and all of a sudden I realized that the raft was crap, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the strings fall apart, and I'm just floating or I die, yeah. right? I go under. Uh, and other times I find that you know I've got something, some set of beliefs that I can weather that storm, and then remember we can shift boats. Yeah. You know, I I don't like this one. I, there's a guy floating by on this cool looking raft. I kind of <laughs> swim over and join that one. Yeah. Sometimes we uh, strap a couple together and we kind of mix our worldviews um, in uh, syncretism, they call it. Mm-hmm. And other times we want to go our own way. Yeah. It's me and my raft and to hell with you guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's a, a great description of, of the human condition as we experience it in, in yeah. so many ways. Um so maybe for um, and I know we're we're running out of time, um, but can you talk about um, how you see uh, the concept of emergence and how it relates to um, faith and religious perspective? Right, and I'm going to actually twist your question if you let me, because mm-hmm. I'm I'm really interested in the transhumanism focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make sure we get to it. Um, so emergence is this uh, realization. I think it's strongly scientifically supported. Uh, um, trying to think of where I've described it in the simplest terms. Probably in religion, sci- science, the basics. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the chapters on emergence in uh, the book on freedom, in quest of freedom, which is there's neuroscience in chapter one, and then two and three kind of describe how it works. So we know from natural science that new forms of structure and function and types of agency arise over evolutionary time. And within the brain, emergent structures emerge uh, all the time. Edelman calls it um, uh, neuro-Darwinism, because the brain is its own little Darwin system. Uh, And then it happens in culture, it happens in our coming to understand. So emergence is pervasive. Uh, Implication for faith, faith has to allow for emergence. We're constantly in process. Remember, I'm uh, here at the Mecca of Process Theology yeah. in Claremont, so I could I could uh, nerd out about uh, process in great detail. Yeah. Um, for thought and therefore for faith as well. Uh, for me, the fact that our conception of God alters and grows through the course of our life uh, is is completely natural as a part of this emergent process. Hmm. Now, if that's all true, what about human being? Hmm. Biologically, we emerged. We're in continual change or process. We invented technology. Uh, by the way, technology came before humans. We now know that uh, it goes well down into the uh, use of tools, goes well down into the animal kingdom. Wow. Uh, but we are uh, um, the being who doesn't run fast, who has no fur, whose teeth are crappy, right? So we really don't have much except this oversized brain. Right. So we built stuff, yeah. right? And uh, as we built stuff, that's technology. Uh, and then it becomes invisible to us. So you and I aren't thinking of the glasses that we're wearing right. as technology. Uh, they're invisible to us unless they're smudged and then we clean them off, right? Yeah. Okay, that process continues as technology has a, hard, a stronger and stronger role on us. Mm-hmm. Technology, I mean, if you look around you, and it's probably true for most of your listeners, 95% of what is, um, is at hand is is artificial is made by humans right yeah uh now we're turning attention to ourselves uh and you guys i'm sure have looked at all the various um types of uh of human enhancement that are possible mm-hmm. i'll just mention the one example from Hertz in berlin is growing cells uh onto transistors and uh i looked it was 16 uh um and it was a 16 by 16 array when I talked to him. And now, if you look on the web, you can see it even further. The pictures are amazing. You have these tentacles of neurons growing across transistors. And then what he does is he uh, types in a keyboard. The, you have the on and off uh, on the transistor. It sends the messages into this neural network, which is living cells. Yeah. It grows onto a transistor on the other side, and it's got an output. Yeah. He has a computing machine that involves both the artificial and the living. Mm-hmm. That's not science fiction. That's actual. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys know the other examples. I won't go on. That is emergence within the human species. Hmm. Hmm. 
so yeah uh, yeah and it it's um it opens up so many questions but but like you point out it's it's been part of what we do all along right we've mm-hmm. never not uh done this even our our propensity to use uh to cook our food right <laughs> to to use fire um that's that's part of the human condition and it's part of the human condition that was baked in from our use of, of tools. Right. Yeah. And the other thing that really should be emphasized and often gets left out is this, uh, when an animal lives by instinct alone, it only has, uh, instinct clearly genetically based and stimuli from the environment. And it responds according to its instinct over evolutionary time. As cognitive capacity grew, animals began to form inner representations of their environment mm. and use that inner representation to, um, to make more complex responses. By the time you get to the higher primates, uh, they could take an inner picture, try out possibilities, see what would happen, and then do the one that works best. The instinct animal just dies. And another part of the species tries out another animal. So for us as humans, the inner space of imagination or inner representation is so massive. Mm-hmm. Imagine an animal that can create Hogwarts, <laughs> you know, in the Harry Potter series. Yeah. That is a real realness for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. For my kids, it's more real than, you know, the house. <laughs> yeah. Right? Or uh, playing World of Warcraft or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. That's where you live in this, this as it were, inner space. Now, that applied to technology. Out of that inner space, we imagine ourselves as being different than we currently are, and we build it. Yeah. And when we build it, we create a new space for ourselves, which transforms us. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's a good point. Like, um, we, uh, in having this inner space, we create stories, and then we project those stories onto the world. And so everything, the buildings we live in, all of this kind of stuff ultimately started as someone's imagination as someone's story right and now we live in that now that story has has reached out and become a concrete part of our environment yeah and people get that we live in houses that we build yeah uh people get that we uh that we live in ideas novels whatever that we build people don't haven't gotten the last two of this building which is we live in bodies that we transform Mm mm-hmm and you guys have talked about the ways. Yeah. And finally, and most fundamentally, we live in worlds that we construct. Yeah. Every world is a hypothesis about how to live meaningfully. And human beings create their world through religion and literature and the video games that we play and education uh, and prejudice or open-mindedness and cross-cultural work. We absolutely create a world. And that's part of the story of transhumanism that people often leave out. Yeah. All right. Let me ask you for the last two questions. Yeah. Give me the hardest questions you guys bumped into or the ones that turn out to be the most controversial and impossible to, to, hmm. um, to <laughs> answer. Because I'm a guy of questions. Yeah. And even if I don't say – I don't know what the hell to say, I'll walk away chewing on a couple questions. So yeah. what if you enjoyed either hearing or asking the most on your podcast? Oh, that's such a good question. I'm not sure. I think for everybody um, who kind of engages with this stuff, it's it's different. Um, for a, a lot of people, you know, the scariest sorts of thing that transhumanists talk about is like genetic modification of our children, right? That that kind of thing. Um, for other people, uh, I think what what really scares a lot of people are these. Um, the you know the stories of like the picture of Dorian Gray and things like that. So when we're talking about things like life extension, we have all these stories that we just snap to that are really scary. And um, and uh, what what we see sometimes in in some transhumanists is a embrace of these scary things, right? And so that you know that's not encouraging right it's particularly not encouraging for for people who have a strong aesthetic sensibility and who are really aware of history and things like that um so the those are some of the the biggest things i think 
from a religious perspective, um, you know, people, people really worry, like, are we trying to overthrow God? You know, like, are we, are we doing the, the tower of Babel all over again? Is technology, um, something where we have bought into an idol, uh, rather than an expression of, of things that can be good. Nice. That's okay. So that gives me a chance to make, uh, just reflecting on what you just said to try to say two things in closing. Um, the first one is that for an emergentist and a person doesn't believe that there's a fixed essence of human being like myself, the question becomes not metaphysics, but ethics. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't establish what we should be or essentially are. So the question is, what should we do? And it's unknowable because we don't know where, for example, uh, a genetic modification would lead. Yeah. We don't even know that with wheat, yeah. much less with uh, humans. Uh, so then we say, where are the consequences either obviously negative, uh, like uh, we see in global climate uh, crisis, yeah. or the consequences so unpredictable and so potentially devastating that we shouldn't do the action. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the precautionary principle. If you don't know, don't. <laughs> yeah. Right? And uh, so, for example, I think um, ger- germline intervention, yeah. genetic modification in the germline, in sperm and eggs, is has potentially uh, unbelievable consequences we don't know can't predict right so ethically i'd say that we should avoid that uh human cloning right now though i'm pretty sure that at some point it'll happen all right so those are the ethic questions we could talk about that for an hour and then the other thing uh the final question is uh emergence and christianity or uh, transhumanism and religion and it won't surprise you if what i want to say in closing is that is the adventure. Yeah. There's no way to rule it out. There's no way to say, well, uh, our ability to change the human species doesn't exist. It does. Um, for some of us, there's no way to escape from Christianity. I mean, I'm located there till I die. That's just yeah. for whatever complex reasons. So I'm stuck with your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm never going to get away from the damn thing. Uh, and so that's, I think that's a fascinating thing that we have a lifelong quest to link two things that we don't really know how to link and we're not sure they can be linked, mm. but there we are. That's our fate. Wow. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Um, well, thank you so much for this conversation. I, I've loved it and I, I'm sure we could have all kinds of amazing conversations in the future. Um, so maybe, maybe when you, uh, uh, make your way into Nashville sometime. We should uh, hang out and talk and explore some of these questions. I'd love to. In fact, what I often do when I go to a place is get a meeting of 30 or 40 people, hang out someplace where we can talk, and um, just see where it goes. Yeah. And just the kind of dialogue we've had you know, with a, with a larger group. Yeah. So I'm in Nashville in, in March, and I'd love to set it up. Okay, that would be awesome. Well, where should uh, people follow your work? Uh, I'll put links to your your site and some of the other things we've talked about in the show notes. Where would you recommend people go? Uh, from- well, uh, philipclayton.net okay. is, uh, is a core website. Uh, not, um, it's not as completely up to date now. I'm involved in a, um, in a work to support the transition to an ecological civilization mm-hmm. in the climate change debate. And that's, uh, that's the site we're putting time in right now. It's called ecociv.org, E-C-O, and then C-I-V, ecociv.org. Uh, and that's another place to look. Okay. And beyond that, I'm writing and traveling and speaking and, and hope I bump into some, you and some of your listeners as I travel. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks so much, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Micah. You take care. Bye. Bye.